Hi, Pastor John here, welcoming you to our broadcast. Today we'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and asking the question, can you find comfort in affliction? It's a challenging question and the answer may surprise you. Let's join our service and see what the Apostle Paul has to say about how he handles hard times. I'd like you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'm going to read through this passage so that we're familiar with it before we dive into it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, And has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and afflictions, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. It's the word of God. Word of God. Let me, when I first got saved, Kelly and I were excited. We got involved in a whole bunch of other things, and, and we were excited about this new community that we were in, and somebody invited us to a meeting, and we went there, and, uh, it, you know, it was good people. Uh, they, they had a business proposition, so on and so forth, you know, uh, but in the back of the room, they had they had what they called the, the dream wall. And then, uh, you know, the guy who invited me to the meeting took me over there and said, this is what Christianity is all about. Look at this. Put your dreams up here and God will fulfill them. Well, you know, I was new and I thought, wow, I'm going to bring some stuff next week and put them up on the wall, you know. But I was talking to another friend who was new in the faith and I said, well, here, you know, you ought to come with us and we're going to do this together and so on and so forth. And, and he said, oh, John, you know, I, I've been reading the Bible and uh, I don't think that's there. I said, what do you mean? You know, and I had learned some of the lingo. I said, God's going to give me the desires of my heart. How about you? And he said, I'm not sure that means what you think it means. And, and he said to me, Can there be comfort in affliction? He said, the word says that we're going to have hard times. 
And that in those hard times, God will comfort us. And I said, what? (laughs) I don't think that's what I'm signing up for. Come on down to church. Experience hard times. Don't worry, God will comfort you. Well, it's taken me a while to come around to that. But what I found out is the scriptures do say that there will be affliction, there will be suffering, and that God will give comfort in that. So we're going to talk about that today. This is the third in our series in First and Second Thessalonians, living it out. What, what does it mean to walk and, and live as a Christian? Paul's talking to this new church, and he's giving them instructions on how to do this. So let me do a quick review. Paul's had a very long trip. He traveled from Jerusalem north down through Macedonia and then south to Athens and down to Corinth. It's about 2,000 miles. Now, just to give you perspective on that, that's like you and me walking from New York City to Denver. That would take a while, wouldn't it? He hasn't had much success, been beaten, kicked out of town, put in prison, mocked, Nearly everywhere he went, except, except for one town, Berea, and even then, people from Thessalonica came and chased him out of there. And just about the time, you know, everything that Paul has done has been bad news. He's bringing the good news, and he's experiencing bad news. It's just not going well. And by any earthly measure, Paul's, Paul's ministry is a failure. Nobody likes him. He's got these little enclaves in, in each town. There's a few Christians that have listened to him, but the town doesn't like him. The culture doesn't like him. Kind of sounds like where the church is today in our culture, doesn't it? You know, I've said this before. We used to be the good guys. Oh, that was a long time ago, John, maybe four or five years. <laughs> We're no longer the good guys. We're bigoted, racist, narrow-minded. Just put any pejorative label on us you can, and the culture wants to make it stick. That's what Paul's going through. It's just about the time that Paul could use some good news that something is happening in a positive vein somewhere. He hears from Thessalonica, and things are going well up there. As a matter of fact, they're going amazingly well. And, and the, the irony of all that is that Thessalonica was probably Paul's toughest town to minister in. They not only chased him out, they followed him to Berea, 30 miles away. They had to walk. That's how mad they were at him. They made him leave there. The only place that seemed to have a positive impact. Now, needless to say, after all these experiences that Paul had in Thessalonica, His hopes for that church were fairly dismal. But as we see in Scripture, listen carefully, brothers and sisters, as we see in Scripture, God takes our failures and makes something glorious out of them. The only way he can get credit for it, amen? When we tried our hardest and it didn't work, and God steps in and starts stirring the pot and making things turn towards him and changing lives and saving souls, he gets the glory. Exactly what's happening to Paul. So Paul writes this letter back to them. In the first part, he describes what a church should be. In the second part, chapter two, we call it, 
He talks about what a believer should be, and he challenges them on whether or not they can walk as believers. And throughout those first two chapters, Paul tries to warn them that the path that they're on is not going to be easy. It's not going to be fun. We see the word affliction pop up one time in chapter 1, where Paul says that, that the church there, they received the word of God in much affliction. He's talking about all the tension in Thessalonica, all of the opposition, all of the, the Jews were opposed to him, the, uh, the, the Gentiles were opposed to him, the government didn't particularly like him. Paul's going to expand on that theme in today's message. So if you came in looking for a cheery Christmas message, it's probably going to have to wait until next week. So he does this in three steps. We see a review of his ministry in verses 1 through 5 of 1 Thessalonians 3. We see a report in verses 6 through 9. And then we see this request in verses 10 through 13. Let's take a look at the review starting in verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer. Now, what's he talking about therefore? Because the church in Thessalonica is Paul's glory. We see that in the last verse of chapter 2. Say, you're my glory. Therefore, when, when we could bear it no longer, a little bit of a royal we here, uh, he remembers the good times, and, and Paul's looking back, he remembers the fellowship that they had and the teaching and, and the, the intimacy that they had as a small group standing against the darkness. And, and he seems to be downplaying the difficult times, but, but that's just for now. And so... <laughs> at least for the moment. He's eager to hear some good news. And he's so eager that he says, when we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. So we read in chapter 2, verse 18, that Paul wanted to go back to Thessalonica. He wanted to go see him to see how they were doing. But he says he was hindered by Satan. Now, we got to be careful because Paul doesn't see a demon behind every bush here. What he's trying to say is, I wanted to go back to Thessalonica, but but, you know, things conspired against me. It was too difficult. I couldn't make it. It's just like when he went north, he wanted to go east towards Asia to spread the gospel, and the Spirit compelled him to go west. Uh, and we have the church we have today because Paul was obedient to the Spirit. So he says he was hindered by Satan, and this, this is part of the affliction that Paul mentioned in chapter 1. His efforts to minister hit roadblocks, time and time again, and he was prevented from doing it. Paul can't seem to get back there, so in verse 2, he says, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Now, he has instructed Timothy to shore up the church in Thessalonica. He he wants to, to strengthen their foundation. Now, why does he want to do that? I mean, he's been in Athens, he's been in Berea, he's been in Athens, he's in Corinth, he's probably trying to start church there. Why, why is he so concerned about shoring it up? Didn't he give him the teaching? Didn't he, didn't he tell him what the basics were? But he says this, he wants to do this because so that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Oh my. I don't like the sound of this. 
This can be kind of alarming to a believer, can it? And it would get Oh, don't worry, John. That was for Thessalonica. That was 2,000 years ago. That doesn't apply to us here in the United States in the church today. That caution is reserved for the Thessalonians. Keep in mind, keep in mind our, our doctrine of inspiration, that every word, every syllable is inspired by God. It is his self-revelation to his creation and to his people. And that we should understand that every paragraph in the Bible has something for us. There is no, oh, that was then, things have changed. Paul speaks of these afflictions. Well, what afflictions is he talking about? He's talking about all the trouble he's had while moving around by moving south into Greece. But he's also talking about the pressure and the tension that the Thessalonian church has. They're having a rough time. They're going against the flow. And and, and get this, Paul says that he himself and the new church are destined to go through that trouble. Oh, my. You know, I like the the King James Version here in the Christian Standard Bible, which says that they're appointed. They are appointed. Apparently, this type of suffering is an integral part of the teaching that Paul shared with them. Apparently, this is on God's agenda. Getting warm in here. Apparently, this is part of God's plan for his people. Is that possible? Is it possible that God has planned hardship for us? Paul says in verse 4, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Paul is gently telling them, this is what I taught you. This is what I prepared you for. And now here it is. And, And understand this. Paul gets it. But he's not painting a smiley face on this. Oh, don't worry. Everything's fine. I'm in prison, chained to a wall. They just broke every bone in my feet, but I'm doing good. He's saying, this hurts. This is hard. He wants them to know that there's a way through it. He wants them to know that there's more than what they're just going through right then, right there. And he's concerned for them. Verse 5, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I need some news. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He's worried that the difficulties of the church, the opposition, would be too hard for them and it would shake their faith and cause them to just throw their hands up in the air and say, I give up. You ever feel that way? You ever feel that everything you've done has been empty, meaningless? Why even try? Paul says, I get it. He sends him this little review of his teaching 
to remind them that the difficulties and the struggles in the life of a believer and in the body of believers are not uncommon. As a matter of fact, if we continue to read, we find out that all of these struggles are part of what God uses to strengthen his church. Ooh. To strengthen his church. They're part of what God uses to strengthen his children. Now, I got to ask you something. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God sometimes allows hardship into your life to make you stronger? Now, let me talk about it, tell you what I'm talking about when I say make you stronger. Not to make you a super Christian. Not to make you somebody who goes, oh, dude, you should see everything he's gone through. I wish I could be like him. But to make you depend on God. To make you turn to him, to fall on your knees and say, I can't handle this. God says, here's the golden moment. You realize you can't handle this. It's why I sent my son, because you can't handle this. That moment of surrender, that moment that we we go down on our knees and call out for the Lord. Say, help me, have mercy on me. I've sinned. Rescue me. I'm surrounded by dangerous dogs, and they're about to take my life. God says, yes. Watch what I do with this. Watch what I do with your surrender. Paul's worried that they didn't make it through that. And that leads to his his report. The review was good. He said, remember all these things? Sent Timothy to check on him. News is good. And the report is, verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, there's some urgency here. The NIV says that Timothy has just now come to us. The news from the church excites Paul. It re-energizes him and immediately sits down to write this letter. He's so excited. I got I to gotta, tell him what's going on. And he says, and Timothy has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Paul was worried that the news would be the worst. He finds out the news is the best. That ever happened? Oh, I thought this was going to be a disaster. Look what God has done with it. You know, it's, it's nice. It's nice to see that Paul's human, isn't it? He's concerned about things he probably shouldn't be concerned about. He keeps on saying these incredible things. You know, when, when I'm weak, he is strong, and I have to decrease so he can increase. All these things, you know. But Paul, Paul has worries. He has concerns. He's not sure how things are going. Maybe a little unsure about whether or not he's on exactly the right path. We can sympathize with that. So it's nice to see that he's human, but it's also nice to see that he's honest. You know, he gets his news and there's no, oh, I wasn't worried about you guys. I knew you'd do good. <laughs> yeah, boy, I'll tell you, I knew. I, I could tell you guys were going to be great. He's forthright. He's candid about how, how difficult the the Christian life can be. And he knows that some aren't going to make it. He knows that some people come to faith half-heartedly. Maybe they're there to see what they can get, or maybe they have some high expectations 
of God and what he's going to do. Some that come to faith only for so long until it doesn't lead up to their expectations. We see this until it doesn't suit their lifestyle. Paul knows that the only true test of faith is time. It's time. Some people appear to be saved. They fade quickly, particularly when they find out that this might be a rough ride. You know, these are exactly the people that the author is talking about in the book of Hebrews in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 3 says, and this we will do if God permits. They're talking about the ministry, elevating, you know, the whole theme of Hebrews is the supremacy of Christ in all things. Verse 4 says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tested, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, and since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. So they've been in the assembly. I mean, if we're going to read this for what it says, because people show me this verse and go, oh, look, you can lose your salvation. You take it in context, they're saying they've been in the assembly, they've heard the word, they've been blessed, and they turned away. Perhaps, perhaps they had an incredible emotional moment or two, but never really were transformed. We're never really what we call regenerated, made new, never really repented. We're never really saved. Go back and take a look in that passage. When you get to verse 9, Paul says, well, I, would, I know different about you, the church. I know different about things concerning salvation, he says. So Paul's concerned that maybe some of the Thessalonians have fallen away. The pressures caused them to turn back. And he knew that it had been long enough that if they would have struggled enough to make it through, that their faith was authentic. Our faith needs time to grow. Consistency. Paul gets this incredible news, and he says in verse 7, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Now, we know what situation Paul's in. He says, we're experiencing comfort. Even though Paul still has his own struggles, he finds comfort not, not in what a great bunch of people these Thessalonians are, but he finds comfort in the fact that God is still moving. Maybe, maybe it looks dismal, but, but God is working behind the scenes and, and doing things that are, are way beyond what he thought is possible. The church in Thessalonica is firm and strong and growing. And this news reinvigorates Paul. Verse 8, he says, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. It, it is kind of a rhetorical thing. For now we live because we've heard that you're standing fast in the Lord. Let me give you the Kavakis paraphrase here. Your good news has recharged us. We were down and out, but the news of your faith has brought us new joy and a new resolve to keep on keeping on. In verse 9, he says, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, 
for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. Paul is bubbling over with emotion. You can see him. You know, he, he had, he had a, a guy that would write everything down because Paul couldn't see real well. Paul's jumping around the room going, write this, write this. Okay, we're filled with joy. His joy is palpable. He praises God for their sake. And then he says this in verse 10, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. I love this verse. Paul is so overcome that he's just got to see him in person. (laughs) He's got to stand face to face. He knows that there's nothing quite the same as being in the physical presence of someone that you love. Somebody say amen. You don't have to do that just because I said it. Paul, (laughs) Paul longs to see them, but he never, he never abandons his role as teacher. He doesn't protect. The reason he wants to go to them is to help them grow in their faith. And Paul's prayer in this regard is unceasing. Earnestly, he prays, night and day. Now, we see this theme popping up in, in Paul's writings as well. They're in his heart. They're in his prayers in the morning and in the evening. Paul's not walking around spending all of his life praying for the church in Thessalonica. But it's there. He's not reserving this to, oh, I spent a half an hour in the morning and then I spent another 15 minutes in the evening. He's walking around in an attitude of prayer. He's walking around in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit prompts me, he said, Lord, thank you for the news we hear in Thessalonica. Thank you for them. And before he gets the news, Lord, strengthen them. Lord, I lift them up to you. They're in your hands, not mine. When Paul says that we are to pray unceasing, he's not talking about we need to spend our time on our knees next to our bed all day long in prayer. Walk around as if the Holy Spirit is with us and hears us and knows what we're saying. Think about this. Regardless of all the suffering, all the obstacles, all the distractions and all the diversions that Paul is experiencing, he manages to be in constant prayer. I think it's the only way he went through everything that he went through. And this report is given to him and his entourage new life. He leads him to, and, and that leads him to make this request, which is our third step in this story here. And in this re- request, we get a peek at exactly what Paul is praying for this church. He's saying, I pray for you all the time. Let me tell you how it goes. Verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Look at this prayer very carefully. It is inspired. This prayer is not just Paul making up a prayer. This is a prayer that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to make so that it could be written down, so that you and I could read it today. The first thing Paul prays for is for them to be together. Oh, think about this. We're about to go to the communion table. Something that we do in unity with each other. Something that we do congregationally. Something that we do that expresses our union with Christ. 
and our union with each other. Paul is feeling this unity between him and the Thessalonians. But he wants to walk in it. He doesn't just want it to be a feeling. He he wants to experience it personally. Their testimony and their presence has brought comfort to Paul. In all his affliction, Paul wants to run to the church, run to the body of Christ, and share the comfort that he's been given. Isn't that what the church is supposed to be? A safe place? A place where we can experience Christ together? Paul wants that. Verse 12, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So Paul also wants them to experience the unity that he feels. And his desire for them is that they become living displays of the love of Christ, loving each other and loving the people around them. It's so easy for a church to isolate themselves from the very people that we've been sent to bring God's gospel to. Paul prays for these things and then prays that when they manifest themselves in the church, that they will have the inevitable result. We see that in verse 13. So that he may establish, God may establish your hearts, blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. It's an incredible benediction. Thinly thinly veiled prayer for the Thessalonians to be sanctified. What is sanctified? Process of being made holy. Process of being drawn closer to God. Process of being conformed to his image. And he wants them to be waiting expectantly for the return of Christ. Paul's request for this new church is for them to pursue holiness. If we read all of Paul's writings, we find out that he has the same request for every church. If Paul were to pray for us today, it would be the same thing. Knowing that that pursuit alone will keep them united, keep them focused on the word, keep them focused on their mission, keep them ready and waiting for their Savior, acting like he could come back in any minute. How many of you are familiar with our statement of faith? We believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means it could happen any minute. I, you know, it would be a lot nicer if I just said, we believe it can come back at any minute. We'd all get that. Yeah. But really, don't we wake up in the morning and go, probably not today. Don't, don't we have times in our lives when we go, I could probably get away with this. God will forgive me, right? And and at some point, we're going to be right in the middle of doing that, and we'll go, oh, wait a minute, he's back. (laughs) Paul wants us to live like he could come back at any moment. It could happen at any time. He wants us to be prepared. He wants us to be that church that is a light into the darkness. Amen. So we see these three steps. We see this review. Paul's having a hard time 
Later, he's going to write that he is discouraged but not destroyed. I love that phrase. Again, he's saying, okay, it's not easy to deal with. I'm discouraged, but you know what? I'm not, I'm not defeated. I'm not down. Right out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He's being brutally honest here. He's being persecuted, but he's not. What? Well, listen carefully. He's being persecuted, but he's not whining. He's not demanding resolution. He's not insisting on his rights. Oh, this isn't right. I need this, and I demand that, and I want everybody to come around to my way of thinking. He's not doing anything. As a matter of fact, he reminds the Thessalonians and himself that all his troubles are only God's way of making him stronger, bringing him closer to the Father in heaven, causing him to depend more on God than on himself. And then there was this report that he read. Paul takes joy in the news of the church that he left behind, that it's going well. He's struggling. He's being beaten. He's being oppressed. He's been thrown in prison. But instead of complaining and seeking sympathy, he's reinvigorated by the news that God is active. And he remains in constant prayer. Then we see this request he has for the church. He shows them. How to pray. How to pray unceasingly. Now, we're going to have a lot more to share about prayer come January 1st. So I'm excited to be able to share this with you. But for now, Paul prays for unity. Unity and union. There's a difference. (laughs) You know, we we can agree to be united, or we can be in union with each other. We can agree, oh, maybe we have our differences, but, you know, okay, we'll do it your way this time, my way next time. Or we can defer to each other. We can treat each other as more important than ourselves, more significant than ourselves, is what Paul says. So he's praying for that that oneness that goes deep down into the heart and the soul. Doesn't want them just to be together. He wants them to be bound to each other by a common purpose and a desire to honor God in everything that they do. So we see that that brings comfort to Paul and that he now knows that everything he's going through, his suffering, isn't in vain. He's not going through all the beatings and the imprisonments and the ridicule and, and the rejection and the exhaustion and all this suffering, God is using him, refining him, drawing him closer. And all the while, God is pouring his word into and through Paul. That's pretty noble. But let me tell you something. Paul's not the exception here. Paul's not that, that beyond impossible for us to attain ideal. He's an example Paul's an example. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Don't put me up on a pedestal. He's an example that God will use our hard times and our afflictions to bring us closer to him. To teach us to depend on him. To show the world that there's more to life than what we see here. That there is hope. And that there's grace. And that there's a way to get through the hard times. There's something beyond that. There's a way to get through what a friend of mine used to call the dark night of the soul. There's a dawn in the morning. 
And we can have that if we just trust in him and believe. Can there be comfort in affliction? You bet. You bet. If we focus on our Father in heaven instead of the affliction. If we focus on the promises he's given us instead of our situation. If we focus on the fact that those of us who have confessed our sin and repented and turn towards Christ and believe in him as Savior or have an eternal experience waiting for us and that it's far beyond anything we would experience here. That, that comfort and affliction is a promise. We heard it earlier. Listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Now, one of the things that they taught me when they tried to teach me how to preach, I don't know how successful they were, was it find a thread through your passage. Find, find a, a meaning. that, And you might have to study the passage for a long time before you see the thread. I'm betting the thread of this passage is comfort. <laughs> you see how many times God repeats himself here? Do you think it's important for us to know this? That no matter what we're going through, there's comfort. And the reason that God gives us comfort is not just so that we'll feel better about our situation, but so that we can be a more powerful witness for him. One of my favorite authors, Tim Challies, wrote a book called Seasons of Sorrow. His son passed away unexpectedly a year and a half ago. And he just kind of wrote through it. But somewhere in the middle of the book, he said, I now know why God has allowed this to happen in my life. My son is home with him. He couldn't be in a better place. But it hurts. It hurts that he's not here. It's devastating that he's not here. And God has already started placing people in my path that are devastated as well. And Tim has a message that there's a reason for your pain. Not in vain. God will use it to draw other people to him. That's the message that, that Paul has for the church at Thessalonica. So right now we're going to experience that union that we talked about in communion. Now, I mentioned this a little bit earlier. This is something we do together. It's something that shows our union with Christ and our union with each other. This is a unique observance, brothers and sisters. There's nothing in the world like it.
And it's reserved for those people who have called upon the Lord as their, their Lord and Savior. If you're here today and you'd like to take communion with us, if you're born again, if you've repented from your sins, if you've turned to the Lord as your Lord and Savior, you're welcome to take communion for us. We don't have to go through any process. But if you haven't made that move, we would just respectfully ask you to pass. You can talk to me afterwards. We can pray and we can talk about why you would pass. So prepare your hearts. Absorb this message that we've just heard. Process it. Go before the Lord. You know, this is a good time to do business with the Holy Spirit. He may bring up things that you need to repent of. Praise God, he's given us his tool to restore us back to him, of repenting, of turning away from those things and towards him, not just saying, I'm sorry, but of actually forsaking them and turning towards him. Now we're going to pass out the bread, and then we'll take it together, and we'll pass out the juice, and then we'll take it together. Deacons? The wafers here are gluten-free. So Jesus gathered everybody in that upper room. They weren't quite sure what was going on, but he knew. He knew this was the last time that they'd share this meal together until he returned. Filled with symbolism, he washes their feet, humbles himself, tells them, you're not going to understand this right now, but soon you will. Then he takes bread. Traditionally, he would say blessing over it, but he breaks the bread. And he says to him, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat.
So I wasn't there. And the scripture doesn't tell us. But I think when he did the thing with the bread, I think they went, what? I think they looked at each other and said, what did you say? Maybe not. They didn't know what was coming. They certainly didn't expect what was going to happen next. Because he holds up this cup. And he says, this is my blood. Now, that's, that meant something to them. Blood was sacred to the Jews. That's why, why they have the kosher way of preparing a meal. You, you, you're not to eat of the blood because blood represents life. But Jesus says, this cup has my blood, and now he's got their full attention. He says that blood is going to be shed for you. And maybe, maybe a couple of them get an inkling of what, what he's talking about because, well, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Blood comes, is shed when we make sacrifices. Oh. And, and he, he's going to tell them to drink it now. And we're not going to do it yet because I want, I want, I want this to, to rest in your soul because the sacrifice they're about to Take into their bodies the blood that I'm shedding for you. I want you to drink it because I want it to permeate every cell in your body. The bread, the bread will sustain you. It will get you through those hard times. But the blood, the blood will take you to the Father. Renew your relationship with him. Restore you into a right relationship with him. Just take and drink. Lord, may the bread you've given us and the blood you shed for us draw us ever closer to you, Father. We thank you. We thank you for the sacrifice that was made 2,000 years ago. And we thank you for the privilege and the honor, the humbling time of being able to share that with you here today in this building and with every other church that calls upon your name. Lord, let us never forget, even as we enter into this holiday season, the incredible story being told by the baby and his journey to the cross. For without it, it would be just another holiday. Touch our hearts, Father. Let your, your spirit pour into us. But Father, let us not hold on to it jealously. Let it pour through us as well into those around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in online. Lord bless you. We'll be back next week with chapter four. <laughs> Father, we thank you for the Fisters. We thank you for their ministry to us, Father, and the role they've played in our church. We pray now that you bless them as they enter into this new path in their life, Father. Give them direction, touch their hearts, Father. Ease their transition in Jesus' name. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? 
If you're listening on Sermon Audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at WBFVA.org. Just click on Giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.